Welcome to the Triathlete Hour. This week, we have a fun episode with Catherine Bertine. Now, if you're like me, you've heard of Catherine because she spearheaded the successful campaign to get a women's Tour de France race, now a one-day event called La Course, which she also raced it. And she produced the documentary, Half the Road. She's been an editor for ESPN, writing their popular column on trying to make the Olympics. In any sport, any country, just go out and make it happen. Something she actually lived through, too. And she also wrote a book about it, another book about her years as a professional figure skater. And now she's here with her latest book, Stand, about how to be an activist and the behind-the-scenes story of the toll it took on her personal life as she fought for equality in women's cycling. But... What you might not know about Catherine is she started out as a pro triathlete before switching to cycling. And she tells us what it is she still loves about triathlon, some of the details of how she worked to make change, and after all that upheaval, what it was like having a massive crash mid-race that left her nearly dead in Mexico. And coming back from that, it's an interesting conversation because Catherine is always an interesting person. And before we get to that, Laura Sedol joins us for Sid Talks to talk about some of the big news coming out of Triathlete Magazine this week. Also, who gets to race during COVID and is that fair? And what we think about all the indoor racing happening right now. Now, if you want some more tips on indoor cycling, be sure to go check out our training and gear podcast, Fitter and Faster, which is all about indoor cycling this month. Now, one note, Sid and I recorded this at the end of last week before Ironman New Zealand this upcoming weekend was canceled. And we talk a bunch about the racing opportunities available in New Zealand and Australia right now. And they do have a lot more races than most places in the world. But of course, they're still de dealing with the last minute COVID cancellations, just like everyone. So take that with a grain of salt. Now, all of that after this short break. Um, you see recording? Yeah. Sweet. Okay. All right, we're back with Laura Sidal for Sid Talks. And Laura, I know you had some questions for me about our big news this week. Pocket Outdoor Media, which is the parent company of Triathlete, also owns Women's Running, Velo News, Backpacker, Yogurt, a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, we bought Outside Magazine this week, and we have now rebranded as Outside. And, um, and I know the reason this kind of like came up on your radar and a lot of triathletes' radar is... Obviously, to buy outside, take some money, a little bit of money. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're searching down the back of the sofa right, right. for that one. Yeah, is that the one? And, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, our CEO raised a, a round of funding, and a good portion of that funding came from Sequoia Capital, which is the uh, investment firm founded by Mike Moritz. And that name may sound familiar to everybody because Mike Moritz funded the PTO, the Professional Triathletes Organization. And yes, uh, Mike Moritz will also be on our board now. And so I know a lot of triathletes were asking me this week, like, <laughs> so does he control you guys now? Is he, is the, does the PTO own you now? Are you going to be only covering PTO races, no more Ironman. <laughs> it's not going to happen, guys. <laughs> yes, you're narrowing down your uh, broad appeal of uh, activities and endurance sports to just PTO races. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's the business motive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, um, so yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, for the most, I mean, anybody who knows how like venture works and, and funders work, 
They don't really, they don't really, yeah. I mean, look, Mike Moritz is a big name in venture capital and investing. He has a lot of companies he invests in. Um, I'm sure there is an interest from Crankstart Investments and becoming more involved in the PTO and triathlon as a sport. Um, And I'm sure there is some interest there through Mike, but he's a businessman and he's got investments in a lot of other companies as well. So, yeah. I mean, for sure. It's exciting. And I think for sure, part of the reason, um, you know, his firm and the one uh, Next Ventures, if people know that, is connected to Specialized. Um, Part of the reason a lot of these firms were interested is because they see a growing boom in kind of what we call, you know, the active lifestyle, the multi-sport lifestyle, people getting outdoors. Uh, And I do want to reassure people like, yes, um, obviously, for sure, with with somebody who cares that much about triathlon um, on our board, Yes, they will be paying attention to triathlete magazine <laughs> and what we do. But there, you know, nobody on a day-to-day basis is involved in telling us yeah. what our coverage is or anything like that. Um, that would be crazy. That'd be weird. I've actually never spoken to most of our board members. Uh so yeah, it'd be it'd be weird to start. So I just want to reassure everyone. Um, we'll see, we'll see how that goes. But it is it was a pretty busy, exciting week. All right. So speaking of things and seeing how they're gonna work out. New Zealand's getting racing again. Australia's getting racing again. We're hearing all about them racing. I feel like it's kind of not fair, you know. <laughs> especially, especially as this time of year, I would be in New Zealand and like gearing up with the New Zealand races and Australia. It was it was Wanaka last week, uh, a couple of weekends ago, um, and it's like the first time in seven years that I've not been there. We've got Ironman New Zealand in Topo coming up this weekend. Um, Australia had the Husky. Husky long course last weekend by the time this gets released and you know there's other, there's races in Devon uh, Davenport I should say in Tasmania for the ITU so there's there's lots going on down there which is you know it's it's great to watch but you kind of like oh it's and, and it's great for the athletes down there because you know they've not been able to go anywhere I guess and I guess that's the the plus and the minus they haven't been able to sort of get out or in but um at least they've had a they're having a race season yeah, I mean, I think the thing that's interesting to me is one, we are we always like laugh when they're just like going about normal life. You see Instagram posts and it's just like completely normal. Uh, yeah. But it's also, I don't really know how to feel or judge these races, you know, because they're only competing. I mean, there are really, really good athletes in Australia and New Zealand, yeah. and they're certainly very competitive, race, but they're smaller. Um, and, you know, I mean, on the pro side, people are winning prize purses and uh, PTO rankings based on this, but it's not a full field. And on the amateur side, I heard, God, which race? Ironman Cairns? Cairns? Yeah. That they handed out the same number of Kona slots, but it was like 600 people in the race, right? So how yeah, does I that think, work? You know, I, I don't know the full stats, but I did hear it was about one in three got a Kona slot from Cairns last year. And, you know, we've got Ironman New Zealand and... I have a feeling it's very similar going forward to that into that race. Um, you know, there's there's four pro women down to start Ironman New Zealand, which is you know great great for New Zealand that there's you know there's four women that are there ready to compete. Although I think that's small for a New Zealand representative in normal years anyway. I think there are a few other athletes in there who have pulled out or are injured or whatever. Um, and there, yeah, there's one. You know, the, there is one slot up for grabs for the for the professionals, but for the age groupers, I think there's a lot more uh, slots going up for grabs for Kona. Um, and yeah, it's going to be. It is interesting to see how that affects the rankings. You know, we had Challenge Wanaka a few weekends ago, and 
New Zealand had a, a short shutdown and it meant that, um, or lock, that lockdown, it meant that age groupers from Auckland couldn't travel to Wanaka, which is in the South Island of New Zealand, Auckland's in the North Island. Um, but the pros were allowed to, um, which allowed Beck, Beck Clark, who, who actually came second at the race to travel. And, you know, she was saying on an interview that, yeah, if she hadn't been able to race, that's like her PTO rankings she doesn't get. And, you know, obviously prize money and all of that. And I'm like, but how are we doing this? Because the rest of us aren't racing. So we don't, we're not getting any PTO rankings. I'm right. certainly not at the moment. Um, and, you know, Wanaka was a new race. So how do they do the, how do they you, race? I mean, it's not a new race, but they changed the course changed and everything. Course. Right. And, and quite significantly, you know, mm-hmm. it's a real tough course what well, used to be one lap and it's gone to five laps. Um, from what I saw, there was a lot of congestion, which there would be on a five lap 90, right. 90 but I've heard it was, it was successful. Um, but yeah. So how do you rate that when, Oh yeah. How do you judge it? I mean, everyone's <laughs> been telling me, for example, like Kyle Smith, God, I got that name, right. Right. Is <laughs> like, he's the next hot new thing. People like Torsten told me that people until, and you know, maybe he is totally fair, yeah. but I don't know how to, and he outraced uh, Braden Curry by eight seconds for the win. Yeah. But I don't know how to judge that when he's only racing in New Zealand, only racing against Australia, New Zealand yeah. fields. You know, we haven't seen him at, at an international level yet. And so it's just, it or, is really hard to kind of judge. Or, or have we seen him in a race where he's got other athletes about him? So he's, mm-hmm. he's won his last five seventy point three or middle distance races. And, it, and I do think he is a real talent and someone that we do need to look out for. Um, and the, the way he win, wins the races, he's a ridiculously good swimmer. He's got an ITU background. He just bikes from hard, from the gun. Um, and then sort of his running... He holds is, on. He holds is, on is, is what you're saying. Yeah, he holds on. I think that will improve. Um, but he... So he's won his last few races in that same fashion. Hmm. And the last couple of races, he's had Braden Curry running him down where he's like got off the bike probably with like a three minute, maybe four minute lead. And it's come down to like eight seconds at the end. And Braden, we know is no slouch athlete. He's one of the best in the world over the half and the full distance as well. Um, but it'll be interesting to see Kyle. Yeah. Like how do you compare? They're obviously having, there's some great athletes in New Zealand, but put him under a different right. scenario where he maybe isn't out of the water on his own because there's more people in the field he's having to manage the surging and whoever else is on the bike around him maybe and then have to run shoulder to shoulder with somebody in a foot race um we haven't seen that now i mean yeah he could probably still (laughs) do very well i I mean i I guess it's exciting it's a little bit the same with hannah wells as well you know She's been sort of up and coming over that half distance for the last few years, but has only ever raced domestically. Um, she didn't go over to Nice, I think, when the last 70.3 Worlds was. So we haven't seen her really race outside of New Zealand. Um, she's actually going to debut her full distance in Topor and will probably, with the greatest respect to the other win, will probably... W- with greatest respect to the other women will probably win on debut and get a Kona slot. Right. right, Um, right. It's, um, it's an interesting, she's again, a fantastic athlete and it'll be great to see her when the world opens up and put her in with another race. And I still think she'll do very well, but yeah, it's hard. I mean, there are like two issues there, right? One on the one hand, it's going to be 
very interesting for everyone, not just pros, kind of who gets to race and who doesn't. How does this affect Olympic qualification? I know it's a huge factor because it. what I've been hearing from like USAT board, World Triathlon Board people is South America is not going to have races for a long time. Like that's not happening anytime soon. So how do they qualify for races? How do they travel? How do we get them to the Olympics if the Olympics happens? And then for age groupers, how how is, how is any of this going to work this year? How are you going to get a Kona slot? Um, here in the U.S., you know, Ironman Texas is set to go off next month, April, I think that's next. And usually that's a big race. I have not heard a lot about it. It's it's full as far as I know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I and this is just sort of, you know, buzz. But I've heard a ton of people preparing for St. George, preparing for Tulsa. Um, yes. Yeah. But I don't really know if it, like I don't know what's going to happen with Texas. So I think it is going to be interesting kind of to see how that all plays out. And then, you know, the other half of what you're saying there, we do get kind of used to to racing locally, racing in our hometown. It's it's comfortable. It's nice. And then we have to go to Kona or go to another place or fly. And it's a different ball game, you know? Yeah. And, you know, those they're building up a great resume like of races and wins locally. Um, which is fantastic for them as athletes, and maybe that's the you know maybe that's a lesson as up and coming pros to do to stick local, get the wins, get everything on the board, and then you know when you're at that right level to kind of be able to to be really competitive, like really right. challenging for the front, then go broader. I mean, yeah, it's oh, I'm I'm just struggling because it's New Zealand and I want to I want to go. It's um. Last weekend in Wanaka, everyone was sending me video messages from like my homestay kids. And um, I've got a, a friend that does the adaptive race. She's got um, a form of cerebral palsy and she was in one of my race suits. So as she crossed the line, I've like, she said, her mum sent me a video. I'm bawling my eyes out. And it's, and I'm also, I, I'm in Boulder now and it's snowing and it's summer over there. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. It is snowing. Um <laughs> It's a thing though, for sure. Like the taking your skills into in your low, like that you, you know, you always ride your route, you got your route, you got your pool, you got your everything. And then you go somewhere else. And it's totally, I know a lot of people, age groupers, amateurs, pros who, you know, struggle with international Ironmans, like never can nail an international iron because everything changes. You can't find the food you like. It's tricky. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason that when I'm racing a full distance, I like to get there at least a week in advance, mm -hmm. like just to get like the first few days again, sort of find your bearings, get settled, get everything set up in your room or your hotel or, you know, homestay accommodation, wherever you're staying and get those first few days of training in because then for us as pros, it normally gets a bit hectic towards the race anyway. And so if I'm kind of more comfortable or familiar, I've ridden the course, I know where transition is I know how long it's going to take me to get there I know where I'm going to park in the morning all of those things that go through to try and take out all those risk factors now I know I appreciate for age groupers it's not right. you can't necessarily do that and take two weeks in advance off for a race but it's kind of what we have yeah. to do you know there's a reason why people go to Kona and train for training camps okay it's nice weather but you know they go to train on the course so it's familiar with them you know, for them when they come to race and things like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I ended up house sitting for like two months before Kona. And it's the only reason. And I literally remember thinking, thank God I saw this course beforehand. Yeah. Because it's so hard. If I had seen this for the first, I would have just it's, not even known it, what to do. It's funny as well. Um, I speak to a lot of people who race challenge rote. And they look Roth. at the time. 
Roth, sorry. <laughs> I was going to correct there and give it the proper name. <laughs> I was going to be like, wrote. <laughs> yeah, challenge Roth. Let's go back to that one. Um, and yeah, so I speak to a lot of people and they look at the race times because it's a fast course and they think that they come with the expectation that the bike course is flat and fast. And then they ride it if they've had chance pre-race, but if not on race day. And afterwards they're like, oh, wow, that is not a flat course. That is a really hard course. And it's got a lot more elevation than people know about in Roth. They just look at the time and think, oh, it, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it must be flat because it's fast. Now right. it has really tough hills in Roth, but it does have some great descents, which you can pick up a lot of speed. The road surface is amazing and it might be a smidge on the shy side of, uh, of distance. It's a little on the shy side. It's fine. Maybe. But no, not that much. I reckon it's maybe one on when I've raced. Anyway, <laughs> leave that, part, that one. But again, that goes back to that being familiar with right. a race if you're not expecting it to be suddenly a hilly course, and that's what it is. So we're advising. I mean, these are pre-COVID problems. Obviously, yeah. not really a problem yeah. right now. And you know, obviously, I think this year we're all just going to be happy to get in whatever races we can get in. I'm pretty much only driving to races for the foreseeable if yeah. they happen. Um, so you know, yeah, future people problems. These are problems for future us. Future people. God, can you remember? It's going to be like remember that year when we used to travel <laughs> to race. So the only racing that has been happening lately, uh, besides in New Zealand, is Zwift Racing, Zwift Pro Series. And we did a little story kind of about, you know, the last series wrapped up. Um, it was a it was a little different because they did have run bike run, or God, I can't remember. Bike yeah, run bike. Bike run bike. So they, bike it was um, it was an individual TT on a hill for first where they take off drafting. And then it was a, oh, I think, between 6 and 8K run on the treadmill. And then the last bike race was a crit race. So lapped course, collecting points every lap and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. And, I mean, you didn't do it because you've been injured. But it did seem pretty brutal, kind of hard. Also, there were a lot of technical issues yeah. with the running. I, I mean, I saw... There were some simple things, you know, try, like r the running is a little more technically complicated, I think, because you have to have like a foot pod. Um, and then I did see like Paula Finley and Eric, uh, like from, and he was posting on Instagram that he had to like hold her treadmill in place because it was moving across the garage <laughs> as she was running so fast. Was like, he needs to slow down. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of the treadmill is not to make it move across the <laughs> move yeah. forward as well. Yeah, look, I mean, as the article said, you know, Zwift racing is brutal. Like there is no let up. It is, it's, it's not real world racing. It's from the gun, it's max efforts. And so it's really, it's really tough. And when you do the three races in a row, how they've done it with Zwift, it, I mean, it's, it's fun. I, I did the previous series and loved it and hated it at the same time. Hated it because it, it's just horribly painful, but loved it because actually you get such a boost well, one, it was great to connect with the other women. Racing, mm -hmm. you just get a boost in fitness. I do think, you know, I like that Zwift are trying to explore options. They're trying to support the pros. Uh, this series, there was prize money each week, whereas in the last, it's been points collected over the four weeks. So I think that was real a real bonus for the for the women racing. But I think, and I think I like them pushing it, trying to bring the run in. But I think it did cause quite a lot of technical 
issues where people sort of like yeah on the run seem to have more issues than the than the bike and I don't even... think that was sort of like switching over your connections and that sort of thing I don't know yeah there was even one guy oh I'm like trying somebody emailed me about all this there's one guy who missed uh Oh, Anthony Costitz. He missed the run because he couldn't transition his like tech fast enough. But then missing the run actually left him refreshed enough to win the second bike. So then he ended up finding a new strategy. <laughs> like- exactly. exactly. So like the first, I think the first, that was like in the first week and yeah, missed it with technical issues and then just absolutely smashed out all the points in the crit race and still then won the 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 night or the series of races overall which was kind of like well hang on a minute that's not really fair so I think they had to do a bit of jiggering as they went through to say no you have to get a a score kind of thing to be eligible at the end of the night for the for the prize money but yeah I think it was and I was thinking like if I was doing it in Girona my bike is in like the living room my treadmill's in another back room so I was like thinking how am I logistically going to get cameras because I don't have that many devices and you seem right. to have, you've got like backups and everything's on charge. So it doesn't run out of battery. And I wasn't quite sure then how I was going to transition in time. And because you've just done a flat out TT effort. So you're breathing through you. <laughs> and then you're like, all right, now pick up all of your stuff. <laughs> yeah, pick all up, get all, you know, get, get the camera set up, get the iPad up, then go and smash out an 8K run at max effort or whatever it is, and then get back to the bike to do the crit race. So yeah. I mean, honestly, I one of my things I'm obsessed with is people's. We're now calling them wattage cottages instead of pain caves from uh, <laughs> last last week's uh, episode. But I mean, people, I because I don't even quite understand how people have one computer running for Zwift and one running for Discord, and then they have like the TV episode running, and then they like it's too much for me. I don't, I don't totally yeah, get it. My, my network would be like what I remember when I was in the UK last year in in lockdown. I was at my sister's house. And I was kind of in the garage kind of for, for, for my bike sessions in Zwift. And I struggled to connect to the app just to chat to people and have Zwift running because like my sister was working from home on the, the network. My brother-in-law was working from home. My nephew was on the computer right. online all day. And so we just had all that. And I was like, oh, this isn't, this isn't going to work. This isn't, yeah. isn't going to happen. And then my yeah. husband, I was, cause I just got on Swift and just been testing out all these things. I didn't realize there was an app I needed in addition to oh this. And then my husband comes in and goes, <laughs> and then he comes in and he's like, you know, cause I had it like sitting on a stool and I was looking at my phone and he's like, you know, that's not very ergonomical. It's going Going to hurt your back <laughs> like, <laughs> different problems <laughs> it is like now i have um it's like you've got to have like almost like a, a stand in front and then if yes. it's like the zwift races you've got to have a camera and it's got to be at a certain angle so you've got to have something else to, normally if you actually took a photo of like standing back of the room setup and there's like shoe boxes per you know a phone perched on a shoe box with a plant pot behind it and a music stand or whatever holding something else up yeah yeah i saw sarah true post this week um brought up you know she's like at her sisters or something that she has her bike set up in between like the bathroom door and the bed and that <laughs> it's not classy but it gets the job done and i really identified i was like i appreciated yeah. that you know I mean, yeah. yes, the super fancy stuff is nice, but all of us have. <laughs> I think we can um, Nikki Bartlett, the British pro, she uses an ironing board at the front of her bike and has everything on the ironing board. So yeah. So, uh, so yeah, tell us, guys. We always, I always ask this: send us pictures of your wattage cottages, pain caves. We like to share them on social. I think it's really interesting. I think a lot of people also 
decked theirs out this year. Um, so send us in, let us know what works for you. <laughs> and thank you so much, uh, Sid, for chatting with us uh, again. You know, Sid Talks gives us all the scoop. <laughs> no worries. Thanks, Kelly. All right. This week, we're talking to Catherine Bertine, who just came out with a new book, Stand, A Memoir of Activism. But this is your fourth book. You're a former pro figure skater, pro triathlete, pro cyclist, turned documentary filmmaker. I mean, I actually first came across you when you did the ESPN column, So You Want to Be an Olympian, which is very, like the premise was uh, go out and try and be find a sport, find a country. And I think this is so funny because I think so many of us who are athletes are like, oh, well, if I just found the right country, right, the right citizenship and the right sport. Um, how did you even get that gig, though? I was so jealous <laughs> at the time. <laughs> uh, well, so my background is in journalism and in creative writing. And at that point, I had a book under my belt and um, I was freelancing for ESPN. Mm -hmm. So that my in had been created through freelance. But usually what I was assigned back then was uh, the smaller things, you know, 500 word pieces on an athlete or an event. So when they came to me, when ESPN came to me in 2006 and said, hey, we've got an assignment for you. I was like, great. Who's it about? What's it on? You know, and they're like, well, we want to know what it takes in this day and age, this modern day and age to get to the Olympic Games. And I was like, oh, that's great. Yeah. What a great question. And I said, who, who am I profiling? And they said, oh, no, no, you're going to be our guinea pig. We want you to see if you can get to the 2008 Beijing Olympics. You've got two years. Go. Go. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. At that point, I was racing professionally as a triathlete. Right. Mostly I did um, half Ironman and Ironman races. Um, but I kind of dabbled in all of the different, you know, distances to find out which one was my strong point. And um, as much as I loved racing Olympic distance, you know, my swim time was still three minutes off the right, top right. tier pros. And so, and my run too, right? So I was like, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make it to the Olympics um, in Olympic distance triathlon, but huh, how interesting that in triathlon, my strongest discipline is the bike. I wonder what road cycling is like, or even track cycling, any right. role of cycling, except BMX, you know, like, <laughs> what's it like? So that's kind of what started me on that, that track. And I did try a few other quote unquote fringe sports. I was gonna say, I thought sports. you tried pentathlon I and did. handball. <laughs> yes, of which there are no bikes in those sports. And, um, I just, you know, I, uh, props to the amazing women who are in those sports and they are so strong. The sport is actually incredibly strong, but we just don't see much of it in televised in the U S but, you know, team handball over in Europe, these women are making six figure salaries playing it professionally. So it's just, it goes to show that different countries have different sports. And I tried some of the ones we, we Americans thought, you know, are fringe, fringe sports, and they are so hard, so incredibly challenging. And I thought, okay, I really need to stick to something that I at least know how to do. <laughs> and I knew how to pedal a bicycle. But I, of course, I had, I never done anything on a road bike before. Um, you know, triathlon and the TT bike is very, very different. 
Um, and so, yeah, so I was like, okay, well, I guess I got to see what this is all about. And um, along that journey, I'll spare you. I mean, it's all in the book, As Good as Gold, right? Because right. that's it's, it's a long journey. But what happened, um, spoiler alert, that I did not make it to the <laughs> Olympic Games in what ended up being um, 18 months riding my racing my bike. But what happened was I be, I came actually quite close to qualifying and I fell in love with cycling. Right, right, right. So when the, you know, when the journalism assignment stopped, I was like, oh no, no, I'm still going. Like, this is amazing. And because I had access to races, you know, I was usually guest riding and trying to work my way up to that pro level. I thought like, these women are amazing. I think I might be able to make it to the professional ranks. Um, and I want that. That's not part of the journalism. So let's see if I can get there. That wasn't an assignment but, from your editor. No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. But that's where it actually stems into the activism side mm -hmm. was that, you know, as I was trying to qualify for the Olympics, my focus was on the racing mm -hmm. itself. But what I noticed behind the scenes, and I kept asking, why, 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 why is it like this? Was the fact that at all the racing races, bike races that I went to, uh, the women First of all, we weren't even allowed to all the bike races that men were allowed to. Um, the ones where we did race, we were usually half the distance of the men's race. And at the professional ranks, the prize purse was a fraction compared to what the men were making. And coming, coming from triathlon, that made no sense to me. Right. I'm like, wait a minute. Women race the same events, the same distance, the same prize purse, right? And it, it made no sense. That It would be like having... Um, uh, Iron Man for men and half Iron Man for women. Right, right, right. And I, mean, know? I know there's there's a growing debate over like some of the women's event, you know, uh, heptathlon, for instance. Like we don't mm. necessarily want to change that and lose all the history. There's definitely like a growing debate around that. But cycling has this like weird history of the women do lesser events. They don't have yeah. a three week tour. They don't have that many multi day events. Period. Um, it's very weird. It is. It's weird. And sometimes that's the, um, that's the paradox of tradition is that, you know, you want to celebrate that it's been around forever and how wonderful, but for those sports that don't adapt as they grow, then that tradition becomes oppression. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a perfect example of how and why that is. Whereas triathlon, which is relatively young, especially Ironman, what is it now? 45 40 years. Yeah. 40, 40 years. Okay. Yeah. That's right. I'm 45. Okay. <laughs> I knew it was somewhere around there, but that's, it's still, that's pretty darn young for a sport. Right. And you know, that's, so it made so much sense. And I'm so glad that when it was formed that, yeah, of course, men and women had access to these events. Right. Um, that was a, that was a very modern way of thinking about it. I'm sure plenty of people doubted that the woman could do it, but at least they had access to it. So yeah, so cycling um, really fell into the rut of traditionalism, and that's where I was not okay with that. You know, not as a journalist, not as an athlete. I'm like, this doesn't make sense. So that's really what started. Um, it, it turned the page for me of you know once the assignment was over and I wanted to be a bike racer. I also started thinking to myself, okay, well. If I can get my foot in the door um, of sports journalism once again, and I should say once again, because if you remember in 2008 and 2009, we had that huge economic crash. Like if you remember the last terrible economic oh, crash. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. I can't believe that was, what, 12 years ago. But when that crash happened, 
um, ESPN pretty much put all their freelancers, you know, um, we, we were shipped out to the forest, you know? And so I was like, shit, I don't know if I can say that on podcast. I was really like, Oh no, you know, now I'm, I've got to scramble, find other forms of work. And hopefully when the economy thaws, I'll be able to step, step back in. Um, and it was during that time. So then I, you know, I was, um, teaching at the local community college here in Tucson, Pima community college. And I was waitressing and I was trying to make it to the pro ranks of cycling. And then I thought to myself, well, if I can get to the pro ranks and if I can get my foot back in the journalism door, sports journalism, then I would have quite a platform to be able to advocate for change. So that's, that kept me, it kept me really motivated, especially when you're working crappy jobs, you know, and you'd rather be doing anything else. And at this time too, I was about um, 33 years old and I had long paid my waitressing dues, you know, during my teenage years and college years. And here I was again, just trying to, to get by. Um, And, you know, and that's also when I started emailing ASO, which is the, the owner of the Tour de France, Amory Sports Organization is the parent company of the Tour de France. And I, I, I formed proposals too. Like it wasn't just a random email of like, Hey, let women into your race. You know, it was like, right. I was going to say, I mean, like it's a, you know, we'll get to that in a second. Cause your whole memoir is kind of about how to actually affect change. Cause a lot of us could say, Hey, I think there should be a yeah week long race. Um, it doesn't mean it's going to yeah. happen, you know? Exactly. I mean, that's, you know, social media, we see that all the time. I think this, I think that, you know, that's not the most key effective way to create change, you know, but I did, I kept emailing and saying, listen, I'd like to sit down with you. I have a proposal. This would actually be in your financial interest to include women. It will increase your ROI, you know, and I'm I'm sure at the time they were just like, well, who is this chick? Right. Some some woman in Tucson has a proposal. Yeah. Uh-huh. Sure. Delete. Or who knows if it ever made it to the inbox. I kept trying. Um, and it really wasn't until a few years later. So, you know, that was 20, 2008, nine-ish. And it wasn't until 2012 when things began to, to change a little bit. And um, I guess maybe one of the key components that I talk about in Stand is that... Um, activism really ultimately if it's going to get anyone anywhere it has to be inclusive a a team element of some sort you can't create change alone you know you can bring your ideas to the table but there you've got to surround yourself with people who share your viewpoint and your mission and your passion and strength in numbers you know so that's uh it all took a turn for the better in 2012, where I did actually land my first pro contract in cycling, which was a miracle. I was 37. <laughs> I was gonna say, I was gonna say, like you, you decided you want to be a pro cyclist at like 31. Yeah, and like we're like racing for like St. Kitts and Nevis because you had like mm-hmm. make your own national, like create the uh, national yep. team. Pretty much was the national team at that time. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, I mean that's not exactly like the uh the age at which people decide to become professional cyclists. And cycling's very complicated. Like it's not like pro triathlon's much more straightforward. You qualify, you race. Mm-hmm. That's how it goes. Cycling, right. you need a contract, there are rules. There's like the tw- age 25, 8, 28 rule where the average mm-hmm. age has to be so by definition, you're not under 28 and they need the average age of the team to be under 28. That was probably the worst rule that existed in cycling. And it was very behind the scenes, yeah. right? 
Um, and it was other cyclists that had to educate me. I'm like, why is this so darn hard to get a contract if my results are actually pretty good? What's going on? And they did explain to me that about this um, age median rule that women had to average um, below 28 on a UCI team. And that made no sense for uh, so many reasons, but specifically science was proving that women excel at endurance events in their 30s, even 40s. You know, and Kristen mm. Armstrong had already won, I think by that point, two Olympic gold medals in the time trial. So, and she was in her mid mid 30s. Right. So right, right. where was this rule? You know, why was it there? And of course, my journalism side was like, this makes no sense. Why, why, why? There was no good answer for that. And I thought. There was, that rule existed on like develop, development men's teams too. Exactly. Okay. It, it existed on the development um, men's team. Like uh, there, there are two levels. levels of professional racing, the world tour and then something called the pro Conti pro continental. And uh, so for the pro Contis, they had in, instilled that rule. Um, however, over on the women's side, we only had world tour. We didn't have a two tiered split. So they simply, um, in their backward stance on equity, they're like, well, I guess if we have an age median rule, it should be for both men and women. But that was completely disconnected because they didn't actually have two categories for women. So they just said all women have to be under 28, not the junior women, but all women. And that's where, um, unfortunately, yes, that that answer did unveil itself, but it still made no sense. And we're like, wow, you know, some lame brain thinking over there in the UCI. So it's a lot to fight against, you know? And, um, and I did, I got this contract and, and also in 2012, well, actually just at the tail end of 2011, I was hired as a senior editor for ESPN W. The W side of ESPN had just started and, um, I'd written an essay and they, they said, oh, we're launching this new side. Uh, step on, step on board with us. And, and so that happened. So I'm like, okay, great. Now I've got both sides. I've got the journalism. I've got the cycling contract. Now I can help affect change. Um, and so I brought the idea to ESPN saying, listen, this is, by the way, this is when ESPN's 30 for 30 documentary series was thriving. It was mm-hmm. big. People loved it. However, they loved men's documentaries because there were only two or three that were out about women. I think, you know, Venus and Serena. Um, and, but the, the numbers were so skewed. And I was like, huh, there aren't any about women cycling. There's just nothing. And now that I've been in this sport and I know all of the inequities, how great would it be to expose what's wrong, but also celebrate what's right and how amazing this sport is and how, how incredible the, char- the characters are, you know? Um, so I pitched a proposal to ESPN saying that, like, let's make a documentary film. Um, and talk about the inequity and how to fix it. And my editor, who was uh, my senior editor, I was senior editor, she was editor-in-chief, and she shut it down. She was like, uh, direct quote, "Uh, Catherine, cover your ears, but uh, does anybody even watch women cycling? In in that same tone, you know? Right, right. I'm I'm going to tee this up for you. Yeah, okay, go, do it. Right, because that's the, right? The argument is always, and it's like... We have a lot of same friends, heard it a lot of times. The argument is always people don't watch it, therefore, so it won't make money. It's just like simple math. Therefore, you need to get the advertisers and the sponsors before you can get on TV. 
And so they, they don't put it on TV because nobody will watch it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yep. Yep. Oh, I know. We call that the pentagram of blame. <laughs> yeah, that's in Stan too. Yes, exactly. And, you know, chicken and egg, you know, I took it up to the pentagram side and there's different sides, but it really is. It's true. Like, where does that change happen? Right. Mm-hmm. But, but I actually said to, to my boss, I said, you're right. People don't watch women's cycling because they can't see it. There's no visible platform for it, but your ESPN, you can create that. And by all means, do it as a test market. See if anybody watches. If you don't believe it, then I, you know, okay, go ahead and do a market testing. But the fact that they were even shutting down that idea of, of just saying, oh, does anyone watch it? No, they don't. Therefore we're not interested. And it really, it didn't sit well with me, you know, um, and I, I knew, my gut knew that they were wrong because I knew enough about this. Uh, sports fans are sports fans. And at the highest level, those fans don't care if it's a man or a woman. They just want to see a game played really well. And cycling, as you and I know, and triathlon, it's got such a worldwide influence of, you know, fans across the world love cycling and triathlon. So this particular editor really didn't have any knowledge of that. And I, I said, okay, you know, I said to myself, fine, well, if you're not going to make this documentary ESPN, then I am. And did you know I, how to make a documentary at the time? Oh, oh, <laughs> no, no, I didn't know how to make it. I, I had a video camera, like a VHS camera from my childhood. I love that thing. I made home movies all the time. Did I make ever anything professional? No, of course not. I didn't know how to do it. But I also at least was wise enough to know that anything I don't know how to do, I've got to find somebody who does. Okay. And again, that element of teamwork, if you're going to make change happen, like, oh my God, can you imagine if I tried to film the whole thing on my iPhone and like pasted it together and, and it's like, hey world, check this out. I would be, uh, yeah, we wouldn't be sitting here today. <laughs> no. That was ultimately uh, the documentary Half the Road, which was pretty wi- like widely watched, uh, pretty well received. It was kind of everywhere for a few years there. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's the, the short story is it took two years. We started in 2012. We, it came out in January of 2014. And it proved ESPN wrong. Cycling fans wanted to see this film. And now we have the, um, the data and the demographics um, I crowdsourced for this film. I didn't know what crowdsourcing was. <laughs> Crowd, oh, crowdfunding. Okay. Right. Crowdfunding, crowdsourcing, <laughs> sorry, synonyms there. Nobody, I had no idea what that was. And somebody had to explain, you know, Kickstarter and Indiegogo. And I was like, whoa, you know. Mm-hmm. But sure enough, we built a budget for that film. And it was made because we had, um, we reached, you know, donors across the world, 16 countries with an equal split of male and female donors supported half the road again showing like look this isn't some some women's film made by a woman director like they no one cared about that it was about you know the sport itself so that was awesome and even to this day here we are now at seven years later i still receive royalty checks small but i still receive royalty checks because people are still downloading half the road because it's relevant you know and it's we actually when when we debuted in 2014 we got picked up by a distribution company because they saw the value in it. And we, um, we screened across the world, uh, entered 10 film festivals, one, three or four, you know, and these were festivals that were not like 
this is a bike lane, a bicycle film festival. Like these are, you know, the, the bigger picture of it all. And so we felt really um, happy that we'd reached our goal of like, this isn't about so much about cycling as it is about um, people being un- unequal and fighting for what's right. So, so as yeah. you were competing, cause it's one, okay. So another thing you hear, like you're competing, you're racing as a pro cyclist and you're seeing things that are wrong. Now there's yeah. an side where it's like, well, you're just complaining, right? Like you're like, you just, you just, you just want to be more popular. Like you're not as big yeah. a deal as Chris mm-hmm. Froome. Get over mm-hmm. it. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like one, like how do you navigate that and race and deal with all the advocacy and right, right. It's a lot of things at the same time. It was, it was a lot. It, um, it was probably like the most exhausting stretch of my life. <laughs> um, I think what kept me motivated was because we kept gaining traction where okay. people were like, you're right. This isn't right. We need to fix this. Um, of course, along the way though, there was so much opposition and pushback that I wasn't prepared for in my, um, you know, my tiny brain of trying to be a documentary filmmaker for the first time. I really truly thought, okay, women just want to have equal access to the same races that men do and, you know, and to be paid the same and to have the same distances. And, you know, in my head, that made so much sense. I was not prepared for how many people felt the opposite and said, no, like, no, you're not equal. You know, this, no, this, this is, this is a man's world and we're not on board. And I think what got me really in, in a couple tough positions was, um, uh, the amount of women that stood in the way, you know, um, I, I come up with a term that I use in stand called sister blocking, you know, when, when women deliberately stand in your way because they don't agree with your view and rather than just chalk it up to a disagreement, they actually try to block that type of progress. You know, um, I use the example where in 2013, my director on the professional team that I raced for, did not like it that um, that I was speaking out about inequality and cycling. And in her mind, she thought sponsors will drop us, you know, uh, like be quiet, keep your mouth shut, just smile and wave, you know? Um, And she was very, very worried about that. And she said, you know, if you keep talking, Oh, she also thought that um, making half the road, she actually thought I was making like a, um, a film about myself you know, no matter how many times I tried to show her the trailer or tried to get the point across, like, no, no, no. I interview other people in this film. Every now and then I'll pop up as a narrator, but I'm not, this isn't about me, right? But she, I think in her mind, interpreted that this was a vanity project of right, some sort. Right. And oh my gosh, Kelly, it's so hard to um, ask somebody to see or visualize something that is being made. It's not done yet. So they can't, they don't actually have any sort of tangible or visual proof, but you're asking people just trust your idea, trust your mission. Mm -hmm. And not everybody will, you know? So she took that road and said, if you keep talking about this stuff, I'm going to, I'm benching you. you, Right. Like, yeah, you didn't race. I raced once in 2013. Um, and then I went to other, you know, local type of races by myself as a, you know, an independent of St. Kitts and Nevis, but I was benched from racing with the team for that whole year. I mean, the other thing she said to you was that you're nobody, right? Like you're not a big deal. You're not a big name. How, which is probably a similar thing to what I was just saying a second where people like, like, so just get better, like be better. And then people will care. 
how do you uh, how do you deal with that? No, you're right. It's not about it. there. I think for any athlete in any sport, talent will only get you mm-hmm. so far. As opposed to the the things that we don't always see, the roadblocks that might be out there, the people that stand in our way, or um, you know, and, and that's exactly it. I I had. Um, I was a, a good cyclist, you know, training camp proved that I was doing very well. Um, so to be benched, uh, despite where my fitness and abilities were, it was very, very deliberate, mm-hmm. you know, that like we're benching you because we don't like what you have to say. When I say we, it was really just one person. It was right. the director. I had an amazing um, group of teammates. They were fantastic. The sponsors were great. And I, I always really like to articulate that because we can't make it seem like, oh, the whole team was against me. It was really one person, but she was in a position of power. She was the one who made the decisions. And I think it's important. We need to see that. We've seen that happen in so many other sports too. You know, like um, when Mary Kane disappeared from the running world, you know, and now we understand that it was really the decision makers above her that made her life hell. And it wasn't like, oh, all of a sudden she had no talent. You know, it was the, it was the very, very opposite of that. So yeah, I think it's important for us that maybe keep an eye out on our favorite athletes and And check in uh, on them. Check in, check in. Exactly. It's, it's one thing if somebody broke their leg, okay, now we know why you're out for the season, but if there, you know, maybe it's good for us to take a deeper dive and, and find out what's going on. Uh, I mean, another thing yeah. though, with a lot of the really top performers, I talked to a lot of pro, you know, a lot of pro athletes is they don't want to get involved in things that are going to drain them emotionally, mentally, like spend time. Like they're like, I don't have the energy and time to spend on that. I need to just focus on training, right? They don't want to like get distracted. And so on one hand, how did you do that? <laughs> like, how uh, do you keep training and not get distracted? And you also got some pretty big names. You got like Chrissy Wellington to yeah. pitch in. You got Emma Pooley, um, which is Marianne hard. Bose. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, that was that was the nucleus of our, our pressure group. We called ourselves Le Tour Entier, which means the whole tour. You know, women should be at the whole Tour de France, right? And that's actually where the whole teamwork element c- comes in, is that during making um, – while we were making Half the Road, I interviewed Chrissy Wellington. I interviewed Marianne Voss and Emma Pooley. And for those who don't know cycling, they are both Olympic champions and world champions multiple right. times over, right? And you all know Chrissy. So, I mean, um, when I interviewed them, I asked every single person I interviewed, do you want to see women race at the Tour de France? Um, and the response was an overwhelming yes from everyone but I knew we were on to something when those three particularly said, yeah, this is, in, this is insane. I can't mm-hmm. believe, you know, they were very, um, very vocal and supportive of it. And I said, okay, maybe ASO wasn't listening to me when I was pestering them, but I think they just might listen to the four of us. And that is where uh, we banded together and we created the petition on change.org. Um, and it wasn't just like saying, oh, you know, yeah, women should race at the Tour de France. It was a petition, but behind the scenes, it was a website, a manifesto. What we were asking was a meeting for a meeting to sit down with ASO and say, hey, we're not asking you just to change this race. We want to work with you and help and make it better and like make this, you know, a unified effort. And that's when uh, the petition took off and almost 100,000 people signed it. Um, this was also a really big deal. Change.org was still relatively new back hmm. in 2013. Um, and it was a little bit more effort. Today, you can just like hit click, like, right. yep, 
sign, right? Back then, you, could, you had to enter in a few more data points. And um, so to get 100,000 signatures was a huge deal. And um, since I had the demographics to that, I saw the same thing that we saw for Half the Road. It was worldwide participation in this. It was an equal split of men and women. And the majority of the people who signed that petition weren't even fans of cycling. They were just fans of equality. You right. know, and people would comment like, I don't, I don't really even watch bike racing, but what do you mean there are no women allowed at the Tour de France? I gotta you know? that probably not a good way to start to try to give it to ASO. I don't even watch my racing. You want to be like, but I will watch this one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That is very true. But we, you know, we also took the bold move of checking the box that every time somebody signed the petition, ASO would receive an email. <laughs> so that was really fun. You know, Chrissy and I had a great back and forth about that because she's like, I don't know, they might get really annoyed. And I was like, I sure hope so. (laughs) So they did, they got annoyed, but in a, in a good way. Um, And eventually we, that amount of pressure from the world responding. And then of course, thank God the journalists jumped on board Mm -hmm. on our side. They started pestering ASO. Like, well, what do you think about this petition? What is your feedback? What are your comments? And for two straight months, no comment, no comment, you know, but behind the scenes, we did secure a private meeting. I saw a secret meeting. Oh, the secret meeting. Yes. I always say it with a French accent. Sorry. It's terrible. (laughs) The secret meeting. (laughs) And they, and ASO issued a gag order on us. They said, yes, we will meet with you, but no one can know about it. And we're thinking like, well, okay, 100,000 people signed the petition, so they'll probably find out someday, you know, especially if someone writes a book about it seven years later. <laughs> seven years later. <laughs> but it was just so silly, the amount of secrecy, right, for something right. like that. So we did, we met with them on October 1st of 2013. And um, it was, uh, you know, one of my favorite parts in the book was how the four of us got to Paris, you know, Um Emma, let's see, Marianne Voss and I were racing world championships in Italy and we had to take like an overnight train or drive the family caravan. And Emma Pooley was finishing up her her PhD and Chrissy took the channel from, you know, from London to like, we got there, we got there for that meeting. And that's when we started creating La Course Mm -hmm. by Tour de France. Um, and everything was behind the scenes, but, and, and this is very apparent in Stan that we, we did the lion's share of the work, but the amount that we had to convince them that people wanted to see this race was a shock, you know? Um, so it was kind of a combo of all, it's like social media pressure, the petition, the documentary, yes. getting big names on board is key. Yes. And then you have to make an actual proposal, right? You can't like, yeah. and then you have to go and like have lots of meetings, lots of many yeah. meetings. Um, I'm trying to think about public shaming helps. Like there's, there's yes. like a lot of steps, yes. right? To yeah. all of this. And I always like to use the term public shaming, but also benevolent shaming, right. like, uh, you know, an embarrassment um, that will work in your favor as opposed to name calling and, you know, being, um, I don't know, childish and mm-hmm. angry, you know, instead flip it. So, you know, like shame on you, ASO, it's 2021. What are you doing? You know, um, and make make an actual point, a valid point that, you know, the return of investment for this race was that, you know, shame on you for not starting this 
now. Let's right. make like it work together. numbers. And, N- numbers, yeah. exactly, yeah. rather than just venting. Um, and that takes work, you know, because what we all want to write is, oh, my God, you guys are so dumb. Like, just put the race together, you know. And we, it's okay to feel that on the inside, but you got to, you know, get it out there. So, yeah, we... Even the Tour de France petition itself, I think we did something like seven or eight drafts Mm. before we felt that it was absolutely perfect. Um, And that's key. And if anything, maybe that's where I got to use some of my strengths in journalism. Because if you you put Chrissy and Marianne and Emma and and myself next to each other, my athletic palmars pale in comparison to these amazing women. Um, and they brought their visibility, their right. voice. They're, they're also very, very smart too, right? They're amazing. Um, but if anything, I had the capability of organizing, writing the first drafts, getting everybody's opinions, writing the second drafts. We, we did that as a team. And then also uh, very much, you know, um, the organizational aspect for me, that's a, that's a strength that I have. Um, I'm a a good organizer, Mm -hmm. you know, and if you're going to, if you're going to launch a committee to do something, someone's got to be the organizer. As I I call it in the book, you know, they were all the superstars and I was the bus driver, you know? Um, So someone's got to drive the bus. And that's where I want people to realize that we all have that capability. So I, you know, if someone ever thinks, oh, I'd love to see something change, but I'm not famous or wealthy or an Olympic gold medalist. So I guess I can't really do anything. Mm-hmm. My my biggest hope is I say, oh no, you can do something. You can be the organizer, the organizer, the the recruiter, the bus driver. There is a role for everybody that feels that impact of wanting to make change. You know, if you feel that, then you have the ability to do it. I'm gonna go back to the like, how did you possibly continue training and racing? Oh god. That? Okay. So I can tell you this that um. 2013 was a, a really, really bad year for two reasons. One is because my director didn't race me with the team. So I sought out as many individual races or guest riding opportunities that I could. Um, but where it, where I really suffered was that she was very verbally abusive, you know, calling me a nothing, a no one, what you, who you are and what you do doesn't matter. And even though I was at that point, I was what, 38 years old, but it really hit me. You know, I mean, even though I'm a grown adult, I still felt like a little kid just being told, you know, you suck, basically. And and I raced that way. I um, My confidence was shot. I was trailing along at the back of the peloton, not because I was, I was weaker as an athlete, but because I really kind of ingested that idea of maybe I don't deserve to be here. I don't belong here because that's what I had constantly been mm-hmm. told. So, um, yeah, that was a really crap year of racing. I still went out there. I, I had some good results here and there, but I know that, um, it wasn't, you know, it, I never imagined at the start of, um, the activism role standing up and fighting for what we believe that it would have such a negative effect on, on my training and racing. Um, I thought it would be the opposite, you know? Yeah. I thought maybe that empowerment feeling of like, we're doing stuff. We're getting it done. This is amazing. You know, um, I had a bunch of life hurdles that were coming down the line in 2013 and 2014. Those two years were relentless. And um, it took a lot of 
rebuilding uh, emotionally and physically to get back to where I was able to have my best season at the ages of 40 and 41. So I did make a comeback from that by getting over that, um, that mental barrier of thinking you're a no one. That took a lot of work. Yeah, I mean, it's very optimistic of you to think that it was going to be empowering. Yeah. I would have been like, ooh, this is going to be rough. <laughs> and I think, you know, you can in the beginning, you know, when when we're all racing in whatever sport we do, you know, um, and the going gets tough, you, your brain is either going to say quit or no, 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 you got this, right. you know. And so I think that's that's what my brain was trying to do. Like, oh, this is challenging and you, you know, and I feel like shit, but I can do this. I got this. I just didn't prepare for how exhausting that was going to be, you know, physically or emotionally. I mean, obviously you're kind of known for, uh, I mean, bicycling wrote a profile you around a few years ago. Um, Mm. You're kind of known for figuring out a way, right? Like you (laughs) were supposed to run in college. You didn't like the coach. You learned how to row. You rode instead. You were supposed to like be a professional figure skater and the company went under. So you were like, screw it. And you went with Hollywood on ice instead, right? Like you've like, you just like kind of make it up and figure it out every step of the way. But, but a lot of this book stand is kind of about all this stuff. Like you were this huge public figure and that was like your MO but there's all this stuff going on, right? Like you had severe depression, you went through a divorce, like there was all this stuff going on kind of behind the scenes that I don't think you really wanted people to know about at the time. It would, I mean, how does, cause it would have affected the whole, the whole perception. You're right. You're right. At the time. I mean, obviously I'm comfortable talking about it now, seven years later and right. be, you know, but that's also why it took me so long to write stand too. I had to get to that place where I was able to be like, okay, you know, step onto that vulnerability type rope. But um, until then, you know, yeah, I, um, I think part of the, the struggle was when you have that public persona of like, oh, okay, I stand up for justice. I'm mm-hmm. strong. Uh, that's one face. But the other, the other face, the other side was the fact that I was truly flailing in my personal private life. And um, I, I can't say that I consciously made this choice, but I must have said, like, just push it down, you know? Mm-hmm push it down. Uh, don't let what's happening in your private life affect your public gains in activism, you know? Um, cause if I, you know, we were still, this was all happening during, um, the, the year of 2014 when, when half the road had just come out, we were working diligently behind the scenes with ASO to create La Course by Tour de France, which was going to happen in July. Um, my book, uh, at that point, that was my third book was coming Mm -hmm. out. So it seems like this amazing year of progress for visibility of, of women cycling. And, um, yeah. And my husband left unexpectedly in the middle of all of that happening. And it was such a shocking, shocking situation that, um, it definitely, it sent me into a tailspin of depression. And I actually like to talk about this point that, you know, in my generation, we were kind of brought up, no one talked about mental health or depression, or if anything, depression was always seen as something that was clinical, um, you know, something that you take medication for, and it's something that you're born with. And that is a type of depression, but it's not the only depression that's out there. And there are so many branches on the tree of depression and what was affecting me or what was happening to me was very much a situational depression. You know, the loss of a marriage, the unexpectedness of everything happening all at once. Um, Something that I just wasn't prepared for in any way or shape. So what 
people aren't educated enough, and especially myself at that time, was that situational depression can be just as deadly and dangerous um, and devastating as any level of clinical depression at its lowest. It, it's it's all just a you know just a, a different term, but a very same affliction that can happen. So, but I but I was like, well, I'm I'm not depressed. Right. I don't, I don't have a diagnosis. I'm not depressed. And it wasn't until later, you know, where, um, it kind of came to light and like, no, I'm, I'm in a bad way, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, we talked about that in the bicycling magazine article mm-hmm. and, and, in uh, book, and yeah. yeah. And I think it was the bicycling magazine article that maybe gave me the courage to try mm-hmm. writing a book because I do talk about that. I talk about, um, you know, a very, very near, near brush, you know, or near miss with suicide. And I was so scared to talk about that in the, in the article. But when I did, I got the most incredible feedback from total strangers who were like, Oh, thank you for talking about this. I thought I was the only one, Really, you know, and that, that really flipped the switch for me to say, Oh my God. Okay. Maybe, maybe we need to talk about this more. And Maybe when we put that vulnerability out there a little bit, um, people won't feel so alone. So that's kind of where it, uh, where we went. We right. being the voices in my head and I, <laughs> we you, decided to make a change. <laughs> do you think it, uh, I mean, I don't know the answer to this for sure, but do you think it's more common with athletes or not, especially at like a high performing level? I do. Mm-hmm. I do. I think um, whether a high performing level or whether professional or amateur, that doesn't matter as much as the fact that, um, athletes are, are driven people, you know, and then the higher that drive, the more competitive. Absolutely. Um, I think that there is, there is a direct connection between, uh, mental health and the, the physical, um, prowess of an athlete. You know, I, I really do think, and, and hopefully, those levels stay very, very balanced. Mm-hmm. So I don't want that to come across as like, oh yes, all cyclists and triathletes are depressed. You know, <laughs> that's that's not it at all. But it's saying that I think we all have on the spectrum. If if we can put our body through, you know, 140 miles of racing, then I also think that we can put our minds mm-hmm. through incredibly difficult challenges, whether we want to or not. But there is a definite direct connection where. Um, we're willing to push with our body, then our minds probably have that amount of depth to to them as well. And um, I don't know about you, but I've I've certainly seen plenty of cyclists and triathletes who are um, who are running from something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. <laughs> like I feel like I was always oh, yeah. say, yep. <laughs> yep. 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 And that's not a bad thing. It's only dangerous if that person just keeps running and running and never actually sits and says, you know what? Okay. I am running from something. Maybe I need to think about this. Maybe I need to reach out and find some other sources of help rather than just a, um, 20 hour bike ride, you know, maybe there, <laughs> and you know, and we're all guilty of that. I talk about that in the book too, how during the toughest year of 2014 and 2015, I very much use, um, used riding as a tool to try to cope, mm-hmm. you know, um, either to think things through or to sometimes numb the mind, whatever it was, there was definitely a direct connection happening there. 
No. Yeah, one of my coworkers at Trail Runner uh, likes to say running is not therapy. Like it's good; it has mm-hmm. lots of tools, but it's not the same thing as an actual mental health professional. Correct. Working with you. So. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh yes, absolutely. You also wrote in the book about so you don't through all this stuff. Finally, the tour. I was going to say the tour. The course. What happens? You get to race it, and like, oh my god, everything's amazing. Um, you go and you do this bicycling article, and you're like, surely between now when we did the whole interviews and when the bicycling article comes out in three months, nothing else crazy will happen. Surely, <laughs> I've paid my dues, right? <laughs> yeah, and then for people who don't know, you had a terrible crash, massive brain injury. Like they thought you were dead. Which is just like to me, it's just sort of like, wow, this just another thing on top of everything. <laughs> It was, um, it was the, yeah, the ultimate, uh, I guess, you know, (laughs) I can't even think of the right word for it. And that's, that's a lot for somebody who's a writer, but it was, you know, the ultimate, the pinnacle, the turning moment of um, sustaining this crash, which I have to say, uh, because people always ask, um, like, well, do you remember the crash? And no, I have no memory of the crash itself, but I have a very good account of what happened from what was told to me. And I'll give you the short story, which was, this was in 2016. And by the way, I'm also having my best year, my best season. You know, um, I had, I had turned from using cycling as like a coping mechanism to something where I now is back in love with the sport. Mm. I was racing. I was, I was so strong too, you know, from all the years of triathlon and cycling, finally culminating in this, um, you know, what was the best fitness level and strength. So I, and, and my frustration, I was using that in the best way. Like I was channeling it in the right direction. So, uh, 2015 was a great year. The start of 2016 was also a great year. And, um, I was down at the Vuelta Femenil in Mexico, UCI race, you know, and when you're in an Olympic year, um, racing is always feisty. Right. And when you're, you know, when you're in the last mile of a bike race, it's always feisty. So, um, you know, crashes can happen and it's routine for that to happen, but what's not so routine is for the level of severity that goes along with these crashes. And, uh, apparently a rider who's just ahead of me made a move, you know, to, to kind of attack and move up the side and then changed her mind and swerved back into the Peloton in what was obviously a very dangerous way. And she took out a whole mess of us. And I was the lucky recipient of being on the bottom of the pile. Mm. And I broke my skull twice and also my collarbone and a bunch of other things. But, um, it, what happened was it sent me into seizures. And the one thing that I'm very, um, vocally proud of with the UCI is that, uh, at all the UCI level races, the professional level, we have to have a a medic car with a, you know, a doctor in the caravan following the race. And he got to the site and he saw what was happening, that I wasn't coming out of these seizures and the ambulance was still too far away. And, um, he made a decision to inject me with a, um, Ativan, which, uh, basically will slow down seizures. Hmm. And they, um, they were hoping that that would buy me enough time to get to the hospital and they could do what they needed to to do there in terms of the, um, you know, the neurology aspect of everything. I don't, of course, remember any of that. Um, and I spent the next five days at the ICU in Mexico and then was airlifted back to Tucson and spent another couple of weeks in the hospital here. And, um, yeah, it's wild that what should have technically killed me on site, um, 
you know, after a year, I was given the okay to say that I'm now just as uh, weird as I ever was. So they gave 99. you an official, they gave you like an official, <laughs> yeah. an official, oh, yeah, see, this say, is, no, uh, you're good. You're 99% okay. You or like you used to be. I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm just as okay. weird. Great. <laughs> it's like, I got to tell you, uh, so my husband, first off, it's like national brain injury month in March, apparently. Yes. Yes. And my husband also had brain surgery, bad accident, like a year and a half ago. And there was a um, part in there where they do the thing where they come in, they ask you to name however many words you can to start with F in 60 seconds. And it rang so true because I think he also uh, ran out after like four in the hospital yeah. where you're just like, and it's so painful to watch someone like not be able yes. to come up with box, right? Like, right. Oh my right. God. Oh, yeah. It's so, I came up with some other F words. (laughs) (laughs) But you're right. It's a, and for me, it wasn't painful or strange because I was totally hopped up on morphine and everything else that you're given in an ICU unit uh, for brain trauma. But I can only imagine what my dad and my friends were going through. They had no idea at that point. Like, uh, what's going to happen here? Is is she going to be a functioning human for being sure. or not? So for them, it was absolutely devastating. And for me, I was just like, get these things off of my wrists to take out these IVs. Apparently, I like to pull the IV out because okay. I didn't understand what it was, right? And why am I here? And when you have a brain injury, you ask that question like a every lot. five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So the nurses were sick of me. And that, that, that didn't come across as very warm and fuzzy. So, you know, yeah, it was an ordeal. <laughs> but are you, I guess this is a good, are you, you're back mm-hmm. out riding. I saw you like posting pictures yep. on Instagram. You're back out on the bike. Oh, now? Absolutely. And back then, um, after I had healed, after a few months, I was able to ride. You know, it it doesn't freak me out at all riding. Really? Yeah, because that was very, that crash was so um, race specific. Um, Yeah, you know, a lot of people will ask, are you afraid to ride your bike? Or are you afraid of cars? And those were not factors in what happened that day. Um, And had they been, then... Maybe, you know, maybe I would, but no, what I really wanted to do was just to be able to get back onto the bike and, and to, you know, I wanted to race again, just so I didn't have to end my career on a brain injury. And, um, that actually happened in late 2016. Um, and I, so I did get one last race and, um, I was a lot more, conservative. Uh, yes, very conservative. Yes, yes, yes. And my teammates were great. They they were like, "No, I, we get it and we're just happy that you're here." And um so it was really it was a nice a nice moment, a nice way to do it. And, and I know that not everybody gets to do that, and I really feel for the athletes whose um life is altered and their careers are cut short because of one race or one game, whatever it might be. It, it breaks my heart. Yeah, and obviously we're learning a lot more about brain injuries now. It's um, yes. it's actually like a fascinating field of just everything we've learned in the last five years. Even it's crazy. So it is. It is. I will always put in a plug for Concussion Legacy Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, I pledged my brain there. Um, notice I say pledge, not donate, because people are like, "Well, how are you living? Like, how does that work?" I'm like, "No, no, I still have it right now. I pledged it." So that so they'll get it when die, I right. after I die, they, it's all theirs, you know. Um, but what I love about Concussion Legacy Foundation is that they are being very vocal about those tra- about traumatic brain injuries and CTE, and they're putting it out there like, "Hey, bad stuff happens, and let's make sure that we know the warning signs or we fix equipment, etc., so that we, you know, lessen these chances of anything happening." 
And I, I, to me, that's such a great group of activists, you know, who are not willing to be like, oh, no, just wear a helmet and everything will be fine. You know, yeah, that's not always going to work out. But you had to write this book then while you were like not allowed to look at screens for a while. I know like how because I've watched somebody go through like writing a book would be very tough to come to like do on a brain injury. Yes, my my writing life, you know, I knew I wanted to write the story, but um, here's why it's good. I didn't I didn't succeed in writing in 2016 was because I needed this to, I needed the whole storyline to marinate and Mm. to really take the time. Um, And I think in 2016, I also wanted to prove like, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm going to be fine. Everything's okay. But brain injuries do take a long time. And I wasn't allowed. Doctor said like, you have to limit your screen time each day. Um, And I did. So I started a little bit before the, the accident actually happened. Um, and then I didn't go back to that until 2017. And then in 2017, I wrote what I consider the worst draft ever. <laughs> uh, and I think it's very important to acknowledge that because I thought that I could write the book. I thought I could write stand um, as like a manual. Like mm-hmm. here's what here's what we did to affect change. So do A, B, and C and you'll be an activist and it'll be great. Right. And it was the worst draft ever because there there was no human connection. There wasn't anything um, that was really uh, interesting or or formative in there. So I said, okay, you know, (sighs) there are a lot of good key points in here. But if I'm really going to write about this story, um, I need to hopefully try to be brave enough as to put the reality in. You know, what really happens when we stand on the front lines of change is that our personal life and our private life and our public life, they all get braided together and you can't separate them. Um, When you fight for a cause that is so near and dear to your heart, you know, you take that with you and crazy things happen along that journey. Uh, But, you know, rather than scaring people away from activism, what I'm hoping is that, you know, that. Uh, and why I dived into that during that draft was that maybe people will be able to relate to this mm-hmm. or, and also anything that I did wrong, it'll give them a clear d- indication, like, don't do that, you know, <laughs> and anything that I did right, you know, maybe they can, they can use that to their extent in the future. So that's kind of, that was the motivation. And that was, uh, so that was really 2018. I'm like, okay, I'm going to write the the really scary, truthful stuff. Yay, vulnerability. <laughs> you did put a manual at the back, though, that is like, follow these 10 steps. Well, it's like 20 steps. But... <laughs> was it 20, 22? I yeah. think it was around there. You know, Kelly, I put that at the back because I didn't want to be one of those annoying books that like lists all these bullet points in the middle of a book like and makes me sound like an expert. I'm like, no, I think I should show everybody all my faults and flaws and then they can decide if I'm an expert at the end. Okay. <laughs> you know, I'll just, I'll, I'll do it that way. Um, and I felt like, as you know, from reading that only, um, a lot of those, those points only really make sense after you've read the journey, you right. know, so, so I could easily allude to those but I did. I wanted people to at least take away this manual at the end and be like, hey, if you're going to go, you know, um, step on that tightrope and dip your toes into the water of activism, then at least use this as a guide of what to or not to do. And uh, I mean, just like final nail. They also you didn't have a publisher for the book either. There was nobody Correct. who wanted to. They were Correct. like, no, 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 no one wants to read this. So you also started your own printer 
imprint. I never know whatever that's called. And then publish your own book. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Kelly, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm, thank you for bringing up this topic because it's, um, I think it's really necessary to talk about the fact that <laughs> publishing this book was almost indicative of the entire storyline of, of fighting for change. So, um, you know, to, to fill you in, my first three books were all contracted through traditional publishers, mm-hmm. you know, Random House, ESPN, Little Brown, these are big publishing names, right? And um, in the normal world, if you continue to write books, it, it's supposed to be a, a stepladder or stepping stone. You move upward. Um, you've already proven that you at least have the ability to put something slightly worthwhile out there, right? right? So, and I have an agent. I have a literary agent. I had all the boxes checked. So when um, when I turned, well, when we uh, turned in the book proposal, so it's not the finished book, but it's here's what started, here's what it's going to be. And that's usually how a writer gets in advance. So they can sit down and complete the draft as a, you know, paid job, really. Um, so, you know, we brought the proposal to all of those big dog publishing companies that had, you know, had faith in me in the past. And what, and we actually took them to 25 different publishers and they all turned it down for the same reason, they said they were kind and saying, oh, okay, well, Bertine can write. All right. But we don't want this. A book about uh, women who stand up and fight for change won't sell. It's not marketable. Nobody's reading that. There's no room on the shelf for this. And we were baffled because if you happen to think about, you know, 2018. Right, the last few years, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, our social and political climate was proving that, you know, the very opposite, that actually people do want to, you know, fight for change and or know what that's like. What is it really about? And women's rights, et cetera, all of that. So we couldn't figure it out. And eventually, you know, I kind of took a deeper look at that subject. And it was that in this modern day and age, you know, since especially on the rise of social media influence, um, publishing companies really just want to put out, um, you know, comparables to things that are already selling. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're, they're looking to copycat what's already successful. So right. they did comps almost like in real estate, you know, they're like, okay, she wants to publish a book about women fighting for change. Let's see if there are any others out there. No, there are not. Therefore this book won't sell rather than being like, Hey, this is different. This is original. Let's try it. Right. So after, um, it's one thing if you get just one rejection like that, but because they were all saying the same thing, I'm like, no, 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 I don't know. This isn't okay. So I had two choices. One was not write it at all. And the other choice was to publish it myself and to found an indie label um, and put it out there. And so I did. So the comment that got me the most was, um, oh, there's no room on the shelf. And I remember thinking, really, there's no room in the internet? (laughs) Like, it's all filled up. All done. done. The shelves are too high. There's not enough space. Okay. Um, So that, you know, I had to, oh, I had to keep a sense of humor. And that's it. That's a major rule of activism. (laughs) You need a sense of humor. Otherwise, you will die instantaneously. It's so bad. So, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to make a publishing label. And so I'm like, I'm calling it New Shelf Press. And what I'm hoping is that in the future, how great if we can get more books about people. You know, not just not just women and minorities, but anybody, you know, progressive men, whomever, but people who stand up and fight for change 
and, uh, you know, and succeed and do it right. I want to hear these stories. And I know other readers do too. So, um, yeah, so founded it. And then again, much like with uh, Latour Antier and our pressure group, you know, I had to go and hire an editor, a copy editor, a graphic artist, a tech guru, who I always like to tell the triathlon world, that's Torsten Rod. Oh, really? He, he does, your, yes. does your tech for you? <laughs> He's my tech guru. The guru. He's so great. He is the one who uploaded the formats of the manuscript to all three um, uh, books, the ebook, the paperback, and the hardcover. Because it, as it turns out, like, Elves and fairies don't actually make books, <laughs> you know, like, There's like printers and, actual, and files and yeah, yeah, printers and files and humans have to make books, you know, and in the traditional publishing houses that was done for me. So going and figuring out that and it, what a fantastic person to work with. Torsten was amazing. And then the woman who designed the cover, Jen Vosco, she is a local Tucson age group triathlete, you oh. know, and I love these connections and it was it was just really wonderful to see that once again, the only reason Stand exists is because of teamwork. So you know? what? Uh, so one, do you run a publishing house now? Is that like what's next for you? Uh, you know, I don't. I I run my label, um, which solely constitutes of one book at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so do I want uh, more books on there in the future? I would love that. Um, so it's it's an idea that's percolating, but there are a few more books I would still like to to write. Um, not saying that we can't get uh, you know maybe something going and and get some lift off for New Shelf Press. How great would it be, Kelly, if I were able to hire you know ten fifteen people to actually create that label so that it could get more books onto the shelf for the rest of the world? I would love that. So it's percolating. Okay. It's percolating. Okay. So what is uh what is on the because you you've always got something right you've always got something cooking. What is next? I will say this. Um, I have another book that I would like to write, and the reason that I won't articulate it now is because it's it's really in the um, the simmering stages, and I don't want to be that person who's like, well, yeah, there's this book about um <laughs> this guy, and then stuff happens. You know, I'd rather right. give you like a really good concrete sentence. <laughs> but this is how it is for writers. We have an idea of what we want to see next. In the future, I would also love to get back into the documentary game mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, but in the meantime, the side career I have to um, to writing is I run the Homestretch Foundation here in Tucson, which is a nonprofit that assists female pro athletes who struggle with the gender pay gap. And um, we help primarily uh, cyclists. And so I'm, you know, that's, that's my passion. And it's awesome. We've been around for five years, and we've helped 70 athletes from 17 different countries. We've also had a few triathletes through the house too, which has been great. Um, Frankie Sanjana came oh, through. I know Frankie, yeah. Yes. Osa Lundstrom. Oh, okay. um, uh, Maja, uh, oh. okay. okay. Shoot. But you Nielsen. have a lot of Nielsen. Oh, okay. Yes, from Denmark. She's so great. She's awesome. We've had a few athletes. No, the triathletes have come in when um, we're done with the cycling season, and they actually will train here and help supplement the uh, the the house. You know, the cost of the house for the others. So we love that. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I mean, you 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 have so many different things going on. I feel like all the time. And uh, and usually I ask people like, a "Would you rather?" at the end of our interview. But here's my question for you, actually. What would you like to still see changed in cycling? Oh, that's great. Um, 
Easy answer. I would like to see um, more media coverage that is uh, publicly accessible. Okay. Uh, media coverage has to be the next step in terms of locking in the uh, the sponsors and the value. And right now, unfortunately, cycling um, has many kind of uh, you know pay per view style networks as opposed to just being able to to pull it up and watch it for free. And um, I I'm hoping that we can help help bridge that gap a little bit. So yeah, media is a big one. Um, and obviously the Tour de France, the pressure is on and we've kept the pressure that they need more days added to La Course by Tour de France. Um, so those are the, you know, I guess those are A and B, but they're kind of part of the same answer. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking to us, Catherine. And, you know, good luck with everything. Oh, Kelly, thank you. Thanks for helping put these stories out there. So, you know, people um, can be like, oh, What's that weird girl doing now? And maybe I will check out that book or that documentary, you know, and if they become a fan of, of progress and cycling, you know, that's because of wonderful people like you who are giving us a voice. So Good. thank you, Kelly. <laughs> Thanks to Catherine and to Sid for chatting with us. It's always a fun talk. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or iHeartRadio and leave us a review or share with a friend who wants to make change. In the meantime, keep training and keep listening.